The only way to be happy is for everyone to be made equal. So, we must burn the books, Montag. Right now, ye might well. Show us your crooked jaw. But it cannot stay in the Shire. No. No, it can't. What must I do? She doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. What? I'm explaining to you because you look nervous. Peace. I hate the word. As I hate hell, all Montagues and thee. And therein, as the bard would tell us, lies the rub. The other day, my work had a big summer bash. Family came out, we brought kids, and all my coworkers, we got together at my boss's house to swim in his swimming pool. And it was a lot of fun. It was hot dogs and drinks and everybody having a lot of fun in the pool. And uh, in true form, my boss wanted to get everybody together to play these ridiculous games just for fun. We're talking chicken fights, races, swimming in the pool, contest of holding your breath. And through it all, of course, my boss's family's there and his youngest son is there. And he's at that age, you know, I feel like there's there's this age that, that all all kids go through where they... You know, they're not a toddler, they're a kid, but they're getting older to where they're like kind of in that in-between stage. They're not quite adolescent. They're not teenagers yet. That You know, that eight, nine, ten kind of an age. But my boss's son is at that age where he's kind of a punk. And uh, he's there and he's having fun, but but he's doing things that, that, you know, I'm rolling my eyes at. Like there's a race and it's the kids and they have to do swim across the pool as fast as they can. And uh, my boss's son, when they say go, he jumps out and run, runs along the edge of the pool to get to the other side first. And I know he's he's thinking he's like super clever, right? And I'm like, no you're cheating. Like, come on. But it's, it's just like, it's not a real game. Nobody really cares. So I'm like, not going to say anything about it, but you know, you just kind of roll your eyes at it. So we divide up into different teams and we're having these chicken fights and I've got my daughter on my shoulders and we're running around in the pool and we're trying to knock people over. Um, but it's actually like a ton of work to be up to your chest in water running around with my, you know, 50 pound daughter on my shoulders and I'm getting tired. And as we're doing it, suddenly I feel someone pushing me from behind and I turn cause I'm thinking, Oh, it's a chicken fight. I've got to like knock someone over and I turn and see it's not someone in the chicken fight. It's my boss's son again. And he's not in the chicken fight. He's just in the water pushing people. And I'm like, dude, knock it off. Like <laughs> this is hard. And if you're not in the game, like don't, don't try and like tamper with the game. And he's just kind of being a punk. So then as we're wrapping up, we finish the games and we take a moment and my boss gets up and we're all in the pool and he says a few words because that's what he does. And then he turns the time over to me to share a few words. So I stand up because, um, so it's his company, but I'm his, I'm like number two and I help manage the whole team. So I get up and I share some things and I'm excited. We're going to be giving everyone these hats. It's kind of our gift to them to say, Hey, thanks for all you do. And we just got everybody hats. Um, they say it have the company logo on them. It says Big Summer Bash on it, 2021. So it's like to commemorate this cool thing that we're doing. We've had a very good year so far this year. And I get up there and I'm speaking. And so a little bit about me. I don't have very many pet peeves. Um, at least I don't think I do. But one of them that just I, I struggle with 
It's when I am like focused intently on something and I get interrupted or something like pulls me away. So this happens all the time when I'm writing. Like I'll be in bed, I'll have my laptop out and I'm writing and I'm like in the zone, right? And I can't, I don't multitask. I won't, I won't pretend that I can. Like when I'm focused on something, that is it. That is all I'm focused on. And I'll be sitting there writing and then my wife will be like, hey Carson, blah, 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 this and ask me a question. And like, I'll turn and it like pulls me out of it. And I'm like, that's fine. And I like, let her know. And I'm like, answer a question or whatever. And then I go back to writing. And then like a few seconds later, she's like, yeah, but what about this? And it pulls my attention away. And I I try and have a good attitude, but like this frustration is bubbling up inside of me. And I'm like, okay, are we good? And I go back to writing and I'm typing a little bit more. And she's like, you know, what if we did this? And I'm like, okay, okay. (laughs) Close the laptop. Like, Fine. Like, I can only focus on one thing. So if it's going to be this, I need to, like, stop what I'm doing and just focus on you. And so that's, like, one of my pet peeves that, like, gets gets me feeling very frustrated very quickly when I'm, like, trying to do something and, and another, like, thing keeps pulling me away or distracting me or pulling me out of it. So back to the story at the pool. I get up and I'm trying to share a few words. And I'm talking, and I'm I'm kind of put on the spot because I didn't expect to have to say anything, but it's whatever. I've done it before, so I get up and I'm I'm saying a few things, and then suddenly, someone like shoves me from behind, and I turn around, and you guessed it, it's my boss's son, and I'm like, dude, like stop! I'm like trying to share this message, and he like runs off, and all the other kids laugh. So then I'm speaking again, and then suddenly I get shoved again and I look and it's not my boss's son it's it's one of the other kids that's there is pushing me now and I'm like oh great he has just given them permission to harass me while I'm like trying to share something so I grab her and I throw her in the pool and she laughs and everybody laughs and I'm like oh crap now they think it's a game now they think it's okay now they like I've just given them Total permission to sit and harass me while I'm trying to like share a few words and I'm up in front of everybody and I'm just like, I'm feeling myself get annoyed, but I'm trying to not be annoyed and I'm like trying to focus on this thing and these little bugs are keep distracting me. And so another person comes up and tries to like push me another little kid, um, one of my coworkers kids and I like push him away and I'm like, I'm like, ah, stop. And then I see out of my corner of my eye. My boss's son comes running at me from behind. And I'm like, oh, no, you don't. And I turn right as he gets to me and I grab him and he's got full momentum, right? Because he was expecting to ram into me. But I turn just in time and he misses me and I grab him and I throw him underwater. And as he's coming up, I grab him again and I lift him and I throw him underwater. And then I like shove him down there and he comes up spluttering. And when he looks at me, he gives me this death glare he's like so mad that I would do that to him and I was like one good because if you came up laughing you would think it's a game and we're not done but uh I threw him underwater I guess with enough force that he got the message that he's like it's like stop and he gives me this desk glare and he floats away and then I got done with my message and everything was fine and then actually everybody had tacked me after that and tried to pull me underwater because I think they could tell that I was frustrated and some of the uh, my coworkers got involved and were like, they're like, dunk, help him dunk Carson, help him dunk Carson. At that point, it didn't matter. So whatever, they dunked me. 
But man, it was super frustrating. And a little bit later, uh, my boss's son came floating by and I thought he was going to push me again. So I like got on the defensive and he was like, no, 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 no. He's like, I'm not, I'm not. And like floats off. And I was like, okay, I got my message across. So here's the interesting thing. Perspective is incredibly valuable when it comes to sharing a story. Because in this case, I'm the protagonist. I'm trying to share a message and I just keep getting interrupted and it's super annoying, right? From my perspective, as I shared, that's like one of the most frustrating things in the world for me. And I know it's it's a kid, but come on, like I'm trying to give a message and can someone get their children under control? But if you think about it, I'm not the protagonist in this story. I'm the villain. I'm the one that had a reaction that was much bigger than the thing that caused it, right? It's like, he's trying to have fun, trying to poke me, trying to be funny. And I have this full on like emotional distraught reaction where I'm like frustrated and getting angry. And it's just a kid having fun. Also, I want to mention that I have intentionally for the sake of storytelling, I have painted a totally awful picture of my boss's son and it's inaccurate. And again, I did this intentionally for the sake of sharing the story, um, because in that moment, that that was my perspective of him. But think about it. He's like, an eight, he's like a nine-year-old kid having fun at a swim party where everybody's playing, everyone's having fun, and he knows that his dad is in charge and that I'm like number two and he's wanting to have fun with me. Like, there's nothing wrong with this kid. He's just having fun with the games that are going on and everybody's trying to be silly, trying to to be, you know, pull pranks and dunk each other under the water. He is doing exactly what he's supposed to do. And I had this absurd reaction to it. The reason that I wanted to share that story is to just illustrate how perspective plays such a huge role in whether or not we sympathize with someone in a story. And why does this matter? Because I came prepared today to give you my hot take on a book that I just finished reading last night, which is The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes by Susan Collins. It is a prequel to The Hunger Games, and it tells the story of Coriolanus Snow, who we we know, if, we, if you've read The Hunger Games, he later becomes President Snow, and he is this villain. Here's the premise as described by Screen Rant. The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is Susan Collins' novel, Set in Pan Am, 64 years before the events of the Hunger Games, the book follows a young President Snow as he mentors a tribute for the 10th annual Hunger Games. So this book is really, really good. And I wanted to give you my hot take on it. A little bit later, there will be some spoilers. If you haven't read it, go read it. But first, I want to share just a few of my thoughts on it that are more like a review um, and aren't going to have any spoilers. So my hot take. This book is very good. I, I, I'm going to give it a five-star review on Goodreads. It is very well written. Uh, it's very different than the other Hunger Games in terms of pacing, in terms of size, in terms of point of view. Um, I, I loved the first Hunger Games, and I need to do actually a review of the first Hunger Games. I've got some some interesting things to share about it, but I'll, we'll do that in a later in a later episode. For now, I would definitely say that the Ballad of Snakes of Songbirds and Snakes, I would put as number two in terms, uh, if I were to rank the Hunger Games book by my favorite to least favorite, 
Um, Hunger Games number one is just awesome and moves has such a good pace. And the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is just different and it moves at a different pace, but it, it engaged me in a very, very different way. Like I said, it's it's different perspective in that it's the third person past tense, which I would guess is probably the most common uh, point of view for novels and most stories. And I think it comes from the fact that when we tell a story verbally, it's it's typically in the past tense because it already happened. Um, and then it's it's the easiest for the reader to feel like they're hearing someone tell a story about someone else, right? Whereas the first Hunger Games was first person present, which was a little bit weird for me. And I know a lot of people really like that the Hunger Games is written from Katniss's mind, from her perspective, as it happens. It's present tense, first person. But for me, it was there's something a little weird about it. And so I was actually really glad to find out that the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is third person past tense, which I guess I'm just most familiar with. Maybe that's just me. It takes place 64 years before the Hunger Games that Katniss is involved in, and it follows Coriolanus Snow, and uh, it, it's very interesting. It's called the, the the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes because uh, snakes and songbirds, is, which you know, mocking jays, and in this we get to see a little bit more of the jabber jays that um, the mocking jays came from. Um, there, both the snakes and the songbirds metaphorically, but then literally are woven throughout the story, um, which is really, really cool. I love that title. Uh, but it tells the story, the backstory of the villain, right? Of Coriolanus Snow, who's later the president, and he's this really corrupt guy. But of course, we're telling his backstory and we've got to make it engaging. And there's a number of things that I wanted to share today that they're going to talk about that, about this power perspective. But I wanted to mention something first. There have been several recent adaptations that have decided to take the point of view of the villain and tell a different story. I'm thinking about Maleficent, um, and, and I guess these are coming from Disney. They, they see some value in these characters, and they've told some fun stories. I know uh, my wife and daughters love the Maleficent story. We just recently watched Cruella, which was actually, it was better than I thought it would be. I, I enjoyed it the whole way through. And it's the same thing. It's telling the story of the villain or how they become the villain. And interesting, it's very interesting how this goes. Uh, because in both Maleficent and Cruella, there's a lot of time spent justifying their actions. And the goal is sort of to paint a, a more nuanced picture of someone that we just thought was a pure villain we get this more nuanced perspective where it's like, well, no, they had reasons for what they did. But what Susan Collins does in The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is is very different. And I, I don't want to dive too much into this without giving my spoiler alert. So I guess I'll go ahead and do that now. We're going to dive in and talk a little bit more about the details of this book. Um, just know that if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Go and get it. It's actually really, really good. Also, um, I did some research before sitting down to do this, and it looks like they intend to make a movie from it. And uh, the latest update was October 2020. And um, Francis Lawrence, I think, Francis Lawrence, I think that's uh, who's slated to direct. He did Catching, he directed Catching Fire and both Mocking Jay. 
movies. Um, so he's excited to work with Susan Collins again. I, I read a little article about it. But they're not in production yet. They haven't started casting yet. And who knows? It's It's been... Um, you know, nine months since the most recent update, as you know, in Hollywood, things can take time. And with COVID, production is just all over the place. Um, but I think it would make a very interesting addition to the Hunger Games film series. There's a lot of opportunity to do interesting things. And it's a very different approach. The Hunger Games are young, and they're sloppy, and there's not there's not the glamour component uh, that is very much involved in the, you know, Katniss's experience of the ever of the Hunger Games. This is this is very different, but I wanted to go back to the, to the story that I shared uh, at the beginning of this because there's a reason behind it. Um, like I said, perspective is so powerful because when you're inside someone's head and you can understand the reasons for their actions, we'll go a lot more along with what they're doing. We we have an easier time accepting them because it, we understand their justifications for what they do and we'll be a lot more forgiving when it's from that perspective. In fact, we may even start to confuse who is the good guy and who is the bad guy. And I know there are a lot of stories that tell the story from the perspective of the bad guy. And when, once you see their side of things, when done right, we're led to sympathize with the wrong person. But again, uh, Susan Collins does something at the end of this book that I've never seen done before. And it had my jaw on the floor. And we're going to talk about it here in a second. But let's let's dive in and talk a little bit more about what she's doing here. So we have Coriolanus Snow. Um, through much of the book, he's referred to as Corio. Um, that's sort of his nickname. And he's like 19 years old. If you remember, the story opens and we have uh, Coriolanus Snow. And while he lives in the rich part of the capital... And he comes from a very prestigious family. His family has fallen on very hard times. And much like those that we sympathize with in the districts, he like even finding food to eat is a struggle because at home they're eating the same stuff every day and it's just like broth and lettuce. Um, and so he, he's, he's a very sympathetic character in the beginning. He's put on hard times. And there's this really interesting that happens is it's all told from Corio's perspective. And so we get this juxtaposition of his thoughts versus the things he says. And as I mentioned, perspective is powerful. When we know why someone does something, we, we, we go along with it. But Susan Collins does an amazing job in this book of weaving his character through everything that happens. And it's very subtle and we go along with it and and we like him out of the gate right she she does some things with corio's character that just endear us to him so let's dive in and take a look um the first off like i mentioned is desperation uh because he's desperate because he's put on hard times a lot of his actions were a lot more forgiving of those actions the other thing is that since we're in his head uh we often know what he's thinking and then are able to compare it to what he says. Um, and that juxtaposition is a very interesting way to reveal this complex character that is Coriolanus Snow. Um, so we have this thing where he's going to an important banquet and he only has one shirt and um, there's a problem with it. He can't wear it. So he's waiting for his cousin to bring him another shirt. And it's like this big deal. And he's very nervous to have to show up in a dirty yellow shirt. And his cousin, Tigris, finds a solution for it, um, if you remember, 
And so then he, he wears this nice shirt that she has decked out. She's a seamstress and she fixes it. And he wears it to this banquet. It's so interesting because we know that he's stressed about the shirt, but then he shows up at this banquet and he's inter interacting with other people that are from the capital, that are rich, that have money. And everybody's kind of putting on airs. And so one of his professors walks up and she says, beautiful shirt, where did you get such a thing? And it says, uh, Coriolanus looked at his shirt as if surprised by its existence and gave a shrug of a young man of limitless options. So this is this really interesting dynamic that we know how he's struggling, but now he's put in a situation where he has to put on airs. He has to, you know, act like it's nothing. And then he turns back to his professor and he has to return the favor, right? Um, it says he nodded at Satyria, that's his professor, and says, lovely gown. It's new, isn't it? He could tell at a glance that it was the same dress she always wore to the reaping ceremony, refurbished with tufts of black feathers, but she had validated his shirt and he needed to return the favor. So it was really interesting. We know that behind the scenes, this is all fake. They're all acting like they're still rich, acting like everything's fine. When the capital is going through hard times, they just came through a war, we learn, and people are going through hard times where they don't have enough to make ends meet. But they're still acting like they're these rich, pompous jerks. And he has to put on that face. But since we know what he's really going through, instead of feeling like he's a liar, right, we sympathize with him. And you're going to see how this develops. Actually, I realized about three quarters of the way through the book that Coriolanus is a liar through the whole thing. But we forgive him over and over and over because we know the stakes and we know that uh, it's again, it comes back to that desperation that when someone's on hard times and we understand why they're doing something, we seem to forgive them more, even though what he's doing may be considered very immoral. Uh, another perfect example of this is right here. So this is the part where Corio comes home and he received a basket of goodies uh, because of his involvement in the Hunger Games, and it says the following. In an apparent attempt at the capital's former luxury, the basket included a dusty jar of mint jelly, a can of salmon, three cracked sticks of pineapple candy, a loofah sponge, and a flowery scented candle. The soldiers set the basket on a table in the foyer, read a statement of thanks, and bid them good night. Tigress, Coriolanus's cousin, burst into tears, and the grandmam, his grandmother, had to sit down. But the first thing Coriolanus did was run and make sure the door was locked to protect their newfound riches. This may seem like not that profound of a moment, right? Corio naturally wants to protect his home and protect what he has brought home to his family. He's like being a provider, right? But secretly, this is a very subtle glimpse into his character. While Tigress shows gratitude, bursts into tears, Grandmam, his grandmother, has to sit down. She's so surprised, and it's such a good thing. But Corio, the first thing he does is he goes and locks the door because he wants to protect what he's gained. Now, you might think that that's innocuous, that maybe we're reading into that too much. It's just a brief moment, but I tell you, it is a glimpse into his character that he seeks to control. So if we flip ahead a little bit to chapter 26... This is after the Hunger Games have ended and his relationship with Lucy 
Lucy Gray has has developed and he's now in District 12 and he's thinking about going and seeing Lucy Gray and he's kind of nervous about it um, and it says the following because he's out in District 12 now as a peacekeeper and he says he felt trapped here on the base while she could freely roam the night. So he's referring to Lucy Gray. He's saying he's trapped on base because he's a peacekeeper and he has this like regimen that he has to follow. While Lucy Gray, who during the Hunger Games was trapped, right? It's like their roles have reversed. She's now free and, and he's the one that is being controlled. But he says the following. While she could freely roam the night, in some ways, it had been better to have her locked up in the capital where he always had a general idea of what she was doing. Now, this, I had to, when I was reading this, I had to stop and literally pull out a pen and mark this passage. Because on first reading, as you've gone on this journey with Corio, like that, that almost seems endearing, right? He's like, I liked having her, uh, in the capital where I always knew where she was and I didn't have to worry about her. But that's not what he says at all. Let's put this in the true colors. Just like that moment when he brought that treasure home and he immediately goes and locks the door to make sure that it's all, he, he, that he can maintain control of it. Corio's character is all about control. And so he says in some ways it was better when Lucy Gray was in the Hunger Games in an arena where there were dozens of people trying to kill her. For him, it was better to have her there so he always knew exactly where she was than out here in District 12 after she's survived and she gets to roam free. This is insanity. This smacks of someone like in an abusive relationship where their partner is very, very controlling. But because we've been on this journey with Corio, and because, like I said, there's been desperation, he's had struggles, and another thing that happens is he's very kind in the beginning, where he does things that are, that are kind to Lucy Gray. And we assume that it's out of some sense of, of moral compass that he has, even though we're never told that, right? When somebody does something kind, we tend to be endeared to them. But as the chapters get flying by and as the Hunger Games ends, and when he starts saying things like this, that it was better to have her locked up in the capital where he knew what he was doing all the time, you start to realize that for him it's about control. Even in the beginning, his kindness to Lucy Gray is self-serving. And it's woven through the whole thing, his need for control. And this is just another example of that, that, that he would rather have her in absolute danger than to know that she was off somewhere that he didn't know where, he wasn't in control. And, and yes, he likes her, he claims to love her. And so maybe this is spurred on by concern, but it just goes to show that when Coriolanus Snow is concerned about something, he tries to control it. Another example of this comes when he's out in District 12, if you remember, and uh, he's having, you know, these interactions with Jabber Jays, which are the mutation, the capital mutation, where they can use the birds to record conversations. And he says the following, he didn't mind the Jabber Jays so much. They seemed rather interesting from a military standpoint, but something about the mocking Jays repelled him. He distrusted their spontaneous creation, nature running amok. They should die out and die out soon. Again, 
Why does he like the Jabberjays? Because they come with a little remote control that when you tell them to, to start imitating someone's voice, they'll do it. And when you tell them to play it back, they'll do it. They have been bred to be 100% controlled. But not the Mockingjays. The Mockingjays are sort of the district's twist on the Jabberjay, right? It's this thing that nature took control of and introduced chaos, and he hates it. The Mockingjays don't hurt him at all, but knowing that he can't control when they repeat something, it just eats at Coriolanus. He, he hates the Mockingjays, which is so interesting because I think it all comes back to this concept of control. He can't control them, therefore he hates them. Coriolanus Snow kills five people over the course of this book. You can count them. The first is when he has to go into the arena during the Hunger Games to rescue a friend. Again, see, it seems like he's doing something kind, but it actually ends up being self-serving. Actually, this, that one he's forced into. Um, so it seems like he's being kind, but he has no other choice. So he goes in and he rescues his friend and one of the one of the tributes attacks him. His name is Bobbin and Coriolanus beats him with the two by four and kills him. Now we, we let him off the hook for this as readers, right? We're like, well, you were in the arena and they, that kid was, if you didn't get him, he was going to kill you. Right? So we don't even think anything of it. You're like, well, you killed Bobbin in self-defense and that, that may be true. Right? So a little bit later, we, have this experience in the districts, you know, where he stumbles on a group of rebels that have just gotten their hands on guns and they're preparing to flee the district. And the mayor's daughter, Mayfair, spots them. And Coriolanus grabs a gun and he shoots her. He doesn't even hesitate. He does it so fast. But right after it happens, um, we hear his inner monologue where Coriolanus Snow is like, she didn't have a knife to my throat. But she did say she was going to report them. And if anybody found out that Corio, being a peacekeeper, if anybody found out that he was with the rebels, it looks like he's affiliated with them. And he would definitely be strung up and hung. Right? So he's like, the justification was, even though it didn't look like it, technically, in his mind, that was self-defense, right? Mayfair was threatening to kill him. Maybe indirectly. Maybe it's like a few steps away from that death. But she was threatening to kill him. So he shoots her. And again, we're like, well, I can kind of see that. It's kind of a tough call. Um, you kind of had to do that. And in the process, you're like, you're protecting Lucy Gray. So again, it seems like he's being kind when really he's just doing the things. The kindness serves him. So we think he's doing it out of some altruistic motive. But if, if you watch through the whole book, every kind act ends up serving him. Then we have the death of Sejanus. And I apologize if I'm not saying these names right. Um, but Sejanus is his friend, and he uses a jabber jay to capture that conversation that is very incriminating, and Sejanus gets hung. And again, because it was so indirect, because he wasn't the one that killed him, he just provided the evidence that killed him, we forgive him, right? But you you look, his, his controlling nature, his lying, and his willingness to kill if anybody gets in his way, it is riddled throughout the entire book. And it's just so interesting how this, how this all comes together. Now, I mentioned there are five deaths. The fourth death is unconfirmed. When Lucy Gray dies or doesn't die, 
the reader is kind of left up to make their mind on that. And that's sort of a writer's way to, to have their cake and eat it too, to let someone, you know, because there's going to be a certain percentage of people that are going to be like, no, this book is the worst. I can't believe you killed Lucy Gray because she's one of the most redeemable characters in the whole thing. So it's very, it's unclear. We leave it unclear at the end whether or not she dies. But for me, I believe that Lucy Gray actually dies um, because it underpins his entire character and the, what he's willing to do in order to maintain control. But I promised you when this started that Susan Collins did something amazing at the end of this book, something that I've never seen done this well before. I'm trying to think of any other examples where this happens. But Coriolanus Snow is in love with Lucy Gray. They have a relationship that develops while she's in the games and... Um, it continues to develop when he gets moved to District 12 as a peacekeeper, and, and he loves her, and he spends time with her, and, and we're actually rooting for their relationship. And then, like, in the final chapter, when Corio has a chance to move back to the capital, he kills her. Now, why, why, why did this blow me away so much? Why did I say my jaw was on the floor? Because that is not easy to do. To have a character make such a big 180 and have it be believable. You're either going to doubt that they loved them in the first place, or you're going to doubt that they would make that rash of a decision. It's like, if he loved her, why would he have killed her? Like in cold blood. And I was just stunned because it's believable. Do I think Coriolanus Snow loved her through the previous parts of the book? Yes. And do I think that the moment he saw that she was the thing standing in his way of getting what he wanted, that he would be willing to flip the switch and kill her? Yes. It's incredible. Like, I could not believe that she pulled it off. Like, as a writer myself, I finished this book and was just like, I can't believe you did it. I, I can't believe you pulled this off. He loves her through the whole book. And then suddenly kills her at the end, and yet it makes so much sense. It goes back to what I've talked about with climaxes, how they have to be both surprising, but then on second examination, when you look back on it, it makes absolute sense. And that is the case at the end of Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. You look back, and the hints, the subtle lies, the willingness to kill, it's all there. Coriolanus's character does not change by the end of this book. It just gets more and more and more revealed who he really is. And at the end of the day, he cares more about control than about love. And in fact, Susan calls, uh, it's amazing, at the, in the very last chapter, when everything's said and done, um, she has this passage that just nails it on the head. It just says the truth about who he is. And he's talking about love and he says the following. Sometimes he would remember a moment of sweetness and almost wish things had ended differently. But it would never have worked out between them, even if he'd stayed. They were simply too different. And he didn't like love, the way it made him feel stupid and vulnerable. If he ever married, he'd choose someone incapable of swaying his heart, someone he hated even, so they could never manipulate him the way Lucy Gray had. Never make him feel jealous or weak. Man, that, that to me is just like powerful stuff. That's, that's Corio. He would rather have control. And he says that uh, Lucy Gray manipulated him. She didn't. She did nothing. She was just being a normal human being. And he saw that how his desire for her 
messed with his head, made him feel jealous, made him concerned about where she would be all the time. And he realized that love wasn't worth losing control. Because when we're in love, we give up a certain part of ourselves. We allow another person to determine much of our happiness. And he couldn't do it to the point where he's like, if I marry someone, it needs to be someone that I can stand or maybe not. I could even hate them as long as they don't sway my heart. And as long as they're never able to manipulate him, he never wants to feel jealous of anything again. And that, my friends, is cold. So as I finished this book, I was just blown away that it worked so well because I got to be honest, for the first probably 80% of the book, I was rooting for Coriolanus. There was hope for him. I thought there was kindness in him. But as things started to unravel at the end, it was so surprising. And then when you look back over everything that's happened, you realize it was there all along. His kindness to Lucy Gray is self-serving. His kindness to Sejanus. It's so obvious. He, in his mind, throughout the entire book, Coriolanus is talking about how he cannot stand Sejanus. But Sejanus is rich and can get Coriolanus the things that he wants. So he pretends to be nice to him. There's even that moment where he tells Sejanus that he thinks of him as a brother so that Sejanus will tell him a secret that he's trying to figure out. And the secret is that Sejanus is working with the rebels, right? Coriolanus manipulates him to do it. And we don't think anything of it because we think his intentions are good. But as it unravels at the end, you start to realize that he is a dark, dark human being. And his capacity for unfeeling and uncaringness is just incredible. So my jaw was on the floor at the end of it. I could not believe how it ended up. Because because at the back of my mind, I knew he'd end up a villain at the end. But I didn't see it. Not until that last moment with Lucy Gray. And then suddenly I like I, I was like, oh my gosh, she's going to kill her. And it was so believable that I had to stop. I, uh, when I finished the book, I had to go back through and be like, how did she do this? Because it blew me away to have a character in love with something, someone through the entire book and in a single moment turns on them. Now, I know this can be done when like a character finds out that his spouse is cheating on him or, you know, we've seen things where someone, uh, I'm thinking of the beginning of Minority Report, um, where the husband's really mad at his wife because he finds out he's cheating on her. But that's that's different. That's understandable. The the, the spouse did something to, to spur that anger on. It was betrayal, right? Lucy Gray never does anything to betray him. And yet it's still... It makes so much sense that Coriolanus would do what he did because that is his character and it's so clear. For me, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes was just a deep study into Coriolanus Snow's character. And it's frightening by the time you get to the end of it because he, he even had me fooled. And that, my friends, is some dang good writing. 